1: it's kind of it's a kind of extraordinary we have the king of the podcasters who can't get through a paragraph <laughs> and then we have the man who doesn't podcast and he made not a single mistake and he's the <laughs> fastest reader i've ever encountered and um <coughs> so we've had blood and fire yeah. and um actually i've uh there's a lot of things we want to talk about but we're all doing this together so i'm just kind of uh, want to kick it off but i want to ask a question you you talked about um that the uh, the fire was no longer a code, it was a language? How yeah. do you distinguish that? What's that?
2: Well, uh, the, the way in which l- languages are structured are much more contextualized, and uh, uh, they, they don't break down as simply as the way codes are structured. Oh. Co- codes, um, if you look at most codes, uh, are most traditional ciphers are either transposition ciphers or substitution ciphers. Transposition ciphers basically just take uh, the it, all the same letters, they don't change them, they just change the position. Substitution ciphers don't change any positions, but they change the, the actual letters that are in there. And for me, it's sort of a wonderful, uh, for me, it, it, it intrigues me that sort of duality in terms of code uh, intrigues me in regard to Uh, superposed states that, that exist simultaneously and both kind of describe the same thing. I'm thinking here specifically of the way in which quantum theory and relativity have never yet been meshed into one big happy family. And I think that there's, there's something deep seated in the way information works in the world that, uh, requires that sort of duality. And that's what I was playing with. Language is a little bit more challenging, um, because, uh, code, you can do this one thing or another. Uh, language uh, is much less readily definable. Um, I, I, let me see, see what, think about what I'm trying to say, the difference between uh, between code and language. Language is almost like, you know, it's very conscious, or excuse me, code is very conscious, very deterministic. There are elements in language that just don't work consciously, that they are, uh, that they seem to have a, 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 sort of, not randomness, but a sort of indeterminacy that you can't pin down that regular, that, that, that readily. And I think of the idea here, the, the, when I'm talking to students, I'm always trying to explain the idea, if you look at literary theory, they, you know, they, they, they revolt against the idea that an author could write something and not know exactly what he or she meant, okay, fully know what he or she meant. And I try to explain to them that, well, if it comes out of the whole psyche, the psyche has both unconscious and conscious parts. So naturally, there are things I'm not going to be aware of that, you know, all of us are not going to be aware of. Language has more of that. Code is much more directly, it, it's much more as it were conscious much more definable language isn't language has a lot of this weird crap in it floating around that i think is unconscious and that uh i'm fascinated i i, I love uh uh and i have almost as bad an obsession as the female character in the story they're never named by the way really you never right. get their names um but she has an obsession with uh, a couple of figures of speech that my wife says are my particular hobby horses, uh, chiasmus and anti And I think that those are fascinating because the, you can take most phrases that have an of in them in English and reverse them and get something that really undercuts. It's sort of like a return of the repressed uh, in language. Okay? For instance, there's a title of a book uh, by Harold Bloom uh, about poetry called the anxiety of influence okay I always like to spin that around think of the influence of anxiety all right the anxiety of influence is particularly resonant with me now because I, I like to spin off these weird ideas in my head it, it, it probably would be treatable medically uh but the when I get new phrases that pop into my head like there's one that popped into my head last night planetary user fee for the human species okay that's what we need take care of greeting and breeding planetary user fee so I went to Google Which is the desktop Oracle we all bow? Type in that phrase to see if anybody else had used it yet. All right, so I do that. I do that, and it's always nice to know that someone hasn't. But it's disturbing to think when I have just come up with something new, uh, uh, born, born, uh, full-born, full-blown from the head of Zeus, and see that oh yeah, there's 522,000 references to that phrase. (laughs) Okay, there's one from the book of that Daniel Quinn novel. Uh, Ish- no, not Ishmael. Oh, B. Story of B. Story of B. Uh, called the, the phrase I thought was so wonderful that I thought I'd invented was pleasuring ourselves to death. All right. And then I went and Googled it, and oh boy, there's a bunch of them from Story of B. And I like ah shit. Okay. Um, so I see that all the, all the time, and I don't know how I got there, but you led me down this path, Bissam. Right. So right. uh, right. <laughs> there you go. But in de- la- there's a, that level of indeterminacy in language I find fascinating. So there you
1: go. All right. Well, let me ask. I want to ask. Uh, I had a question for Scott also, which is, you, uh, when you go from an oral presentation to print, mm-hmm. and then you, um, uh, what what did that mean to you as a writer? I mean, you you started as a writer. Am I am I right? Did, right. Did it? Do you feel like it changed the process on the next books? Did it, does it influence the way you write? How do you?
3: Well, the biggest thing is that I I write the books and complete the books. Then I podcast the books. When I podcast, I tend to uh, do some on-the-fly editing, like uh-huh. losing the attribution. I don't need to describe the main character's attitude if you, if I can convey that as a voice actor. So, that, so it goes from writing to the audio. And then as I'm reading it out loud, I hear where I've done a horrible job as a writer. I'm like, oh, that just sounds awful. And I'm able to go back and then edit on the fly. And then... As far as the the projects that have come, that I've written after these initial books, it's really been um, more of a cinematic storytelling approach. Uh, There's too long of a section where nothing happens here. I need to rearrange the story so that things are are happening that are going to keep the listeners' interest. So it has really changed the way I I write the books, definitely.
1: Do you you edit after a podcast where you go back to the book before it goes into print? Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
3: And usually a lot of that is, uh, there. a lot of factual errors pointed out, particularly from any listener who's in the military. Uh, there, I get a lot of listeners who have military experience, a lot of, of very, you know, PhD candidates or PhDs who will, you know, email me back, go, that's a nice story, but there's all of these, these things are all wrong. And I'm able to go back and then pimp those people out as sources and go, okay, well, if I did this, this, and this, and... The podcast version of Infected was really cool, and it was a lot of fun. The print version of Infected that's coming out April first is just on a completely different level as a book, thanks to a lot of the feedback I get from the audience. So you
1: podcast betas?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I, mean, I was you're beta testing. <laughs> I didn't know I was. I thought like Infected. That's that's <laughs> probably the seventeenth draft of that book book, and I thought it was done cold stone. But uh, I just got so much feedback and, and saw so many things and read it out loud, so yeah, apparently apparently everything I do is beta, and I'll never have <laughs> I'll never have the full release version
1: yeah, well, maybe we're all beta maybe that's, well, that's it <laughs> that's what
2: it's hoping about. for a better version you know it's interesting you mentioned oh the difference in oral and aural presentation um, James Joyce, as he got older, became more and more blind, and he became more and more obsessed with the way things sounded in his head uh. The poet John Milton was blind by the time he wrote, he wrote Paradise Lost. He, he actually dictated it to his daughters. And when people wouldn't come to take notes from him uh, and take his dictation, he would get really cranky and say, I want to be milked, was the actual phrase he used, as if it was just full of this stuff that had to be brought out. And it's very intriguing and to think that that was all done through what he heard in his head is neat and it's a very different approach to the the writing process in Shakespeare's time people didn't say I'm going to go see a play they said I'm going to go hear a play it was much less a visual medium much more something you went to hear closer in some ways to a radio play oh. there you go. Well, that's
1: interesting do you think we're coming back to that I, I mean I mean I you were saying you think that podcasts are like the new form of literature right
0: I guess I should come up to the microphone and talk about that. Are we on? Yeah. You can hear me now. Um, yeah, I, I think podcasting is... is Introduce is, yourself. Oh, so um, hi, everybody. My name is Evo Terra. Um, I'm a science fiction podcast from a long time, and I also am the co-founder of a site called PatioBooks.com, which has uh, all of Scott's work and about uh, 130 other people's who are who are doing this this kind of work on there. Um, Terry, as you mentioned, yeah, I, I do think that that podcasting is is changing the way that literature is done, especially for the for the new author, for the for the midlist author, and also for the the existing uh, successful author who's trying to break out into new areas. But it, it's not like it's a unique concept. Uh, I, I think of Kevin J. Anderson, for example, uh, m- much to what Howard was talking about here. where
1: He was just uh, here he, last month.
4: He,
0: he reads everything into a, a, a microphone. That, that, that's his writing. He doesn't write on paper. He doesn't do a lot of keyboard work. He goes and takes a walk out in the woods, and and writes his book by his, his micro recorder and then has his assistant transcribe it and then go through new editing. So, yes, I think podcasting is changing literature, but I don't think it's just podcasting. I think literature is under changing because of technology.
1: Interesting. I don't know. What do you guys say? I mean, I I understand that. I deeply disapprove of that, I, There's something <laughs> that you know.
0: I think a story
3: is a story is a story. And it just depends on how, how you tell it. it people have any number of ways with which to craft a story to get all of their thoughts in order with which to link up various plot points, if that happens to be recording it on a recorder or podcasting a beta version to see what floats in market testing or doing a traditional outline with note cards, I, I don't see it changing. I really don't see it changing all that much. I mean, it's still, if it's a good story, people listen to it, great. What is changing is removing a lot of the gatekeepers that are going to prevent a story that may be non-traditional, cross-genre, that won't fit on a specific shelf, that doesn't come across as "ooh, it's a western." I know people will buy this. Being able to take that work, put it right out into the marketplace, and then if the audience re- it resonates with the audience and you get a big following, that's good writing. Because if there's you know 50,000 people listening to it, quote unquote, that's good writing. So that that part is changing, but it's not. I don't see it changing literature.
4: Well. I I deeply
3: disapprove of that, too.
4: Well, um,
2: (laughs) I gained some unintended notoriety by using the term web scabs once upon a time. That was you? That was me. (laughs) And uh, that was an unnecessary incendiary comment. But my objection, (laughs) I think it's wonderful that writers are now using uh, alternative means to get themselves discovered. John Scalzi, for instance, was basically discovered through an online novel uh, posted for free. Uh, And there are a number of folks who are advancing their careers that way, and that's fine. But I think what the potential problem with that is harms of aggregation, that you end up with, it's a great thing for a few authors, but in the long run, what you may end up with out there is a vast digital slush pile which will be then avoided by the editors. Uh, so the gatekeepers are going to be there, a- agents, et cetera. And the other issues that might come forward with that is, yeah, it m- might help people in the short term. But I think the other harm of aggregation potentially is if there's so much free stuff out there, if you can get them cow for free, why buy the milk? And I think that in the long run, this will be self-limiting. Digital digital slush piles are going to be self-limiting. A a mass of novels written by 15-year-olds, again, will be self-limiting. But in the meantime, my concern, since I was Cephwa president for two terms and was not crucified, uh, my concern is that in in the the long term it may be self-limiting, but in the self-term I think it may be self-destructive to authors' advances. I don't mean individual authors. I mean authors as a whole. Now, this didn't get talked about much in SFWA because we are an author's rights organization. But I think that there are also author responsibilities. And one of an author's responsibilities is not to shaft other authors, but to make common cause with them. And so that was my objection to it. For those who were benefiting from it, fine. Okay, great. But I'm just asking people to think a little bit more long-term and what, what the potential impacts of this might be. I mean, the, uh, to lament the state of science fiction Uh, As uh, Terry said at the beginning, uh, in my genre, which is hard SF, if you go into a bookstore, you'll see that the shelf of hard SF is shrinking, is shrinking, is shrinking. Now, why is that happening? People will give you a lot of different reasons for it. They'll say, oh, it's an issue of declining scientific literacy. That may be part of it. Uh, Or they'll say that uh, a lot of the folks, our traditional market, our traditional gateway drug, as it were, 12 to 25 year old males for the traditional early audience a lot of those folks went to massive multiplayer games uh, things like halo halo 2 halo 3 and they didn't come back all right i don't think that's good for our genre now that may mean that some of us will still keep uh, doing this as a niche which is sad to see but my point is i'd rather uh, well put it this way Uh, my father once said to me and my father was a quirky guy he once said to me that you know howard you can make a lot of money in the short term or a lot of sense in the long run. What eventually happened to him on his deathbed, my mother said, your father never made much money, but that never much bothered him. And I come from this nasty old school that says, being a prophet is more important than making a profit. So I still, in my fiction, try to present things that are not only entertaining, but also annoying. All right. Uh, Dante, in talking about the Dolce Stil Nuovo, the n- sweet new style of which his uh, Divine Comedy was part of that, he said that poetry should be utile et dolce, useful and sweet. The sweet is the entertaining part. The useful is that it should do some genuine work in the world. Now, that won't make you popular. I was talking to my students today about, one of my students is a huge Disney fan, huge Disney fan. And we, one of the texts we were reading was the original Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid, which is very different from the Disney version. She was very upset about that difference. And I said, well, you know, she said the Disney version is so much better. I said, well, you know, you could argue that the Disney version is in some ways more escapist. So I had to define escapism a little bit. And I think to some degree, yeah, we all, if we're thinking all the time, we deserve a little escape. Escapism is a good thing. But I think in our world, we've got so much escapism all around us that it might be good to take a break and think. Okay, and that doesn't make my students happy, and it doesn't make my readers happy, but that's too bad.
3: Well, if I could uh, talk about a couple of those points. Um, I think that regarding, I, I don't really see this being a problem for advances in the long run, because what we're able to establish with this podcasting and the PDFs and, and the Cory Doctoros of the world and John Scholars of the world giving their content away is we're able to provide market testing for a market that is notoriously difficult to produce a profitable book. The vast majority of books that are published in the publishing industry don't make any money back for the publisher, and that's 90% of them. And they're hoping for that five to 10% that give the big return in order to keep everybody with a job. And a lot of what I'm doing and, and Evo's doing is, we're putting books out there. We're getting a lot of free market testing for the publishers who are able to look at this and go, "I can see that there's momentum and energy around this author. I better give this author a higher advance to get them, get them signed." I <clears throat> So I might be missing something there. But in the long term, I see this being more beneficial to the authors for better contracts, better advances, because now you've got publishers fighting for a proven commodity instead of publishers. And this is only for new authors. Now, for somebody like you with four books out, that's a completely different ballgame. You've got a separate set of metrics, which you can take to a publisher to say, I deserve this because here's my books. But for new authors, I think it's, it's huge. It's a chance for people who don't write traditional or don't write in a format that editors easily understand to instantly resonate with an audience. You, know, you, you can look at the biggest thing in the history of books Harry Potter, rejected 12 times before it was published. You know, we, People didn't know. There were 12 people who thought, that's not going to sell. It's not that they didn't like it. They thought, that's not going to sell. I'm not going to spend my company's resources on producing that product. So if it's market tested for free, and you've got 500 to 750 million people out there as your potential audience, you can get a, gather a lot of data on what resonates based on the end consumer not the intermediate gatekeeper and as far as the shrinking hard sf shelf goes you know that's every i think every genre goes through ebbs and flows and and largely i would agree with you that 99% of the books i find in a bookstore i'm stunned that it got published and that's you know and i think most authors are probably in that in that camp cuz we're like why don't they just publish my book over and over again it's great but <laughs> You know, the thing is that if the audience is shrinking, the, the audience isn't there for me as a writer. I am there for the audience. So it's, it's up. It, that's kind of the, the two polar opposites of writing. There's, there's the, the philosopher writing, where this is important, needs to be said, let's kick up some dirt, let's make some people think. Then on the other end, there's let's entertain. And on the entertainment side, your job is to sell books. And, and, we're, and most everybody's probably somewhere left or right on that spectrum. But in, in my world, I'm there to entertain people. I'm, it's, an, it's an audience. I, if I'm getting bigger numbers and bigger audience, more people buying the book, then I'm doing a better job as a manufacturer of a particular kind of product.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I, I would agree that we all have to entertain. Uh, you know, publishers won't keep publishing you if your numbers don't work out. If you don't sell, they do not keep publishing you. They won't do it out of, out of love. What I guess I'm objecting to in, in speaking in terms of market testing, et cetera, is the way in which more and more of what used to be done by the publishing houses gets offloaded on the authors. There was a time when editors used to edit. Now they may mainly acquire, their acquisitions editors. There was a time, perhaps some lost golden age, when publicity and marketing folks really focused on marketing and publicity. Now there's more and more of an ex- expectation that the author flog his or her book on, on a blog, that the author take up most of the expense, of the of the whole of a whole book tour process, that is—that's what I'm really objecting to. And the idea of, you know, the, the the publishers now get to have a a proven commodity. Well, maybe do we really need publishers? But that's a whole nother matter, isn't it? That's what service soon, are they yeah. providing? Um, and you know, I guess the the box that the 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 thing that, that gets to me—and this is going to make me very unpopular and I'll go ahead and say it anyway. you are already unpopular. Yeah, I'm already unpopular. Um, The box that the creative commons and the the freeware folks fail to think outside of is this sort of naively messianic economic libertarian faith in corporate capitalism. Now, I'm well aware that book publishers are corporations, too well aware of it. But that sort of faith, that if we just send it out there and we'll be popular, et cetera, that that faith downplays... Or outright dismisses the genuine pain and suffering accompanying economic and social dislocations that come along with technological innovations. People do suffer. I'm just asking you to think about that. Okay? Now I can be nasty and I of course you'll see a bunch of my stuff get podcast later this week. Because as it turns out, I used to be a DJ many, many years ago. And it turns out that the local NPR affiliate out where I live has been recording a story of mine every year. So it's done. And my web guy Uh, pressured me into sending him stuff so that stuff's going to appear but for me I guess print uh, is still the the first thing for me it's plant dye on dead trees All right, I still am associated with that the book is a tactile object etc etc I guess the larger question is if people are more and more inclined to read off a screen and we're offering more and more content that is free on the screen how's it going to kick back for the author How's the money going to well, come
1: let me, back? Let me just put it a little bit here because it seems to me that we're kind of dancing. Uh, there's no conflict here because, uh, uh, not that I'm trying to create any, but uh, you know, I listen to like like Scott's work. I, it, now it, it seems to me like you're, one way or another, uh, you're gonna you're gonna figure out a way to get. It. This is just the way you did it right now. Mm-hmm. I think I think you know how to you know how to write, you know how to tell a story and you know how to market it. So and and I think, you know, you're so you're on the cutting edge of this new technology. But I don't think um, I I don't think it's because of the new technology that uh, that you're published or or that Cory Doctorow is published. You could also not be published, but it, it, it that doesn't seem to me the, to be the cutting edge. I think the I don't know. There's the the, the gatekeeper is like you say the gatekeeper I- the gatekeeper becomes the public mm-hmm. instead of the uh the, the public yeah the the gatekeeper becomes the public instead of the editors and the establishment okay and what what uh gets missing in that for me is the the public has no memory of science fiction and what it is and what it's supposed to be what the gatekeepers do uh when at their best is they keep they they, uh, you know, it's like uh, Eliot's essay, the tradition and the individual talent. They, they, they keep the shelf of books intact. That, uh, and they sort of, they sort of keep us in line. And I think there's, a, and you can certainly make an argument, and I would make it in another venue, uh, <coughs> that we all ought to uh, be out of line and we ought to be wild and crazy. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there's, there, it's good to have this gravity that. That limits uh that that you know that uh, that closes it up otherwise it it becomes it becomes too diffuse and too
3: well you know it, it, and, and and that's the nature of having multiple formats multiple channels multiple medias that's the nature of five hundred channels on t v the internet getting any kind of entertainment that you want a lot I, I, you know to to disagree a great deal of this here is your 100 books of required reading that you have to know to be able to understand a larger genre. Um, a, a lot of that has you know, been forced upon us in school, et cetera. You need to read this. You need to be This is a, your culture. You have to understand it. Whereas for a lot of us, we're out finding our own and making our own culture. And if we don't want to read something, we don't want to be made to, to read it. There's just so many choices now. And there's so many voices that can be heard because of the technology. You can just go out there, and do whatever you want. It, I mean, it's but it's a two way street too. I think Howard, because if you want to be messianic with your work, there's no better field than the internet because you don't have to sell ten copies. You can write whatever the hell you want. If that caters to fifty people are like, this has changed my life. I am. I am. I know what I want to be now because this has made me think. You couldn't get a publisher to print a book that's going to sell fifty copies, but mm-hmm. with a podcast, a blog, free PDFs, you can write exactly the content that you want. But, and, but- but you God. see,
2: I still want the social imprimatur of talking not to myself or to a social network community, but to talking to the larger culture. You know, I, that's, that's one of my – there's a centrifugal and a centripetal force going on here. I have – and it's true, you're absolutely right, that a lot of this is filled the channels. You've got to fill all those outlets, all those multiple platforms. Yeah, and they need to be filled. But I really have difficulty with the idea that the web, particularly Web 2.0, is somehow a democratizing influence – I think that's a neoliberal canard. Neoliberalism is neither neo nor liberal, but it's the belief that the economic and social life of a culture or a planet is best managed through corporate market forces. And I don't agree with that. And I think that increasingly what you see on the web, it's corporate, it's there to sell you product. And sure, print was less obviously intended to sell other product. You may remember Paperback books with ads for cool cigarettes in the middle of them, but generally, because print itself came out of a largely pre-capitalist world, it grew in up. It grew up in a different culture. The web is almost corporatized from the get-go, and that's I guess my difficulty with it. And I think that that's what what Terry was talking about that idea that um, that you know this diffusion. And I'm not saying you have to read every book of the culture. Just most uh, of. Them. No, 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 not even most. But what I what I tell my students is it's easy to be a writer. All you have to do is read a lot and write a lot. You need to read a lot to see how other people have used the language. Read carefully, critically, to see how other people have used the language, perhaps in your own genre. And you have to write a lot to develop your own voice. I think you need to have both. The background to see how others have used it and then your own experience writing it to develop your own way of speaking. And I think if either one of those are lacking, you're lacking something. Now, I know that my books... Are difficult you know if, if I wanted fame and fortune i wouldn't write difficult science fiction on obscure scientific topics for small audiences and smaller paychecks okay but that is a choice I made and it, but it's not as far as to go to say well i 'm just going to write this for my friends, I do believe that one should develop one's craft so that they can speak to as much of the culture as possible. And one of the imprimaturs that you are speaking to the culture is you get paid for it. One of the things I constantly have to remind writers is money should flow toward the writer, not away.
3: Well, okay? this is what Very Scott's simple. doing, right?
2: So yeah. yeah, you're making money. Good.
3: That's it, using it, another channel. You know, it, it, if – if you can't really always follow the dollar signs otherwise Britney Spears is the most influential creature we've had in our culture in <laughs> 200 years yes you know and, and but a lot of what i what i hear coming from you guys is is that the what i want to know is who decides who gets to decide what is good if it's not the customer
2: What's that <laughs> Hardwell, David <right>? Hartwell <laughs> that is a scary thought in itself but we will Well let you know that it's, it's
1: funny there. because we could be having it just struck me that we could be having the same conversation in 1952 about paperbacks about the beginning of science fiction yeah. which was 25 cent they were products and they were 25 cent mm-hmm. products that were not sold in bookstores they were sold on racks and bus stations
3: they weren't really even considered books and how long has so it taken for science fiction to be considered literature at all
2: in where well, i I'm teach it's sure. not Well, um, even i yeah. I've been involved with the department of Eng- the English department at, at California State University, Fresno, off and on, when I'm not writing full-time, for 17 years. And in that time, the Creative Writing Program, which is a subdivision of the Department of English, has never once asked or allowed me to teach a course in their, in their, in their program. Why? Most recently, the director of the Creative Writing Program said, letting a science fiction writer teach in our program would be like having a rock musician teach in a school of jazz. That's a quote, OK? So believe me, I am not one who to lionize the literary establishment, OK? But I do think that it's important that we know what's been produced in our genre, at least have a good sense of that, so we can see what we can mess with. Hemingway said, know the rules so you can break them better. All right, and that's what we, tr- what we try to do. Uh, but I, I, I say, let a million flowers bloom. Let everybody try this. But uh, in my case and in everyone else's case, I do think we ought to consider not only authors' rights, but also, also authors' responsibilities to other authors.
3: And, and, and you feel that making things open on the Internet, giving things away to see how they work, et cetera, you think that, that I'm, I'm, that's where I'm not – I don't giving, feel like Giving saying them, saying them, away, giving giving them the away
2: for free, I think, for me, it poses problems. There's a distinction. Some of you be, may be aware of the difference between what was known as the free or open source movements – and the difference between that and something like Creative Commons. And there's a really wonderful article, which I will now whip out of my handy folder here, <laughs> um, uh, called Toward a Standard of Freedom, Creative Commons, and the Free Software Movement. It's a really profound analysis of what is good and what is bad about those movements. Really good piece of work. It's, he, it's by a gentleman named Benjamin Mako Hill, um, and it's, crea- it's, it's very interesting and wonderful because It's an article that is in some ways uh, uh, critical of the Creative Commons uh, share-alike license, yet it's issued under the Creative Commons (laughs) share-alike license, which is great, which I love. And I love this this sort of irony and to be able to appreciate that irony. Um, One of my favorite bits of irony in regard to technology is the fact that Theodore Kaczynski, a very well-known anti-technology person, his writing was most often perused via the Internet. A system he hated. Okay, history is full of those ironies, and I expect to be tripped up by such ironies. But in asking us to think a little bit outside the boxes and not just go with market forces, etc., I'm I'm suggesting that perhaps the ironies won't trip us up so painfully.
3: Well, at this point, what what I'm still waiting to see, and it's this isn't something that's defendable on your end because we haven't had enough time, and you're saying that looking at the long term is what we have to watch out for. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're looking at the, the, the primary proponents of giving it away for free and then following up with sales. You know, Bay & Books has been doing it for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. You know, Cory Doctorow, my success. Strolls. Uh, Stra- Charles Strauss. Strauss, a couple of people, um, Matt Wallace, who's Eric, got Eric Flint, er- Eric Flint with what 1692, yeah. right? Um, you know, Matt Wallace, who's a totally unknown author outside of the podcasting sphere, but has had one of his movie, his short stories option for a movie. Mm-hmm. John Lenahan's another patio books guy, who's got a hardcover coming out. Nobody knows who this guy is, and it's going to be distributed by Pan Macmillan. He wouldn't, it's none good. of this would have happened without getting out there mixing it up. So, and then the next step of this is. If I'm successful, if John's successful, people are going to start looking to authors that are giving it away and developing an audience going, these guys got to get paid because we've already seen Lenahan and Sigler and Seth Harwood and Matt Wallace that we have seen that these guys produce revenue for the company. So, you know, going back to, I mean, I don't see that. I still don't see the detriment how it's going to hurt people. There's always an evolution of content. There's always a change in the environment. And there's always certain writing movements that have their peak and then die off and come down to a smaller area, why other peaks come up. You know, cyberpunk came up and was very popular. Now it's come down. There's always a cyclical cycle. So is what you're saying that your
2: Cyberpunk was a literary movement, not a methodology of distribution. I guess my objection to that is that uh, there's something called harms of aggregation. You know, one automobile on the entire planet does not cause, or in California, does not cause many problems. But if you've got 30 million of them, they generate problems, harms of aggregation. My concern is precisely if the folks, if, if the publishing industry looks to the success of writers who have done well with the free movement, instead of being something that the writers have to fight for with the publishers, the publishers will begin to demand it. And that, I think, has real problems because that's where we start the downward slide in terms of problems with advances and royalties.
1: So what you're saying, what you're objecting to is that writers have to bring their audience with them. In other words, th- these will be the successful writers, not not. So there, there won't be a writer uh, who will, th- where the publisher will develop the audience. Right. The publisher will just wait until the, um, to the free yep. agent can come and they can say, uh, Jacob, what do you think of this?
2: <laughs> You're a publisher. Yeah. Ooh. He's a
1: corporate, <laughs> a corporate
4: meanie.
2: <laughs> yeah, corporate meanie. <laughs> Very meanie. Uh Which part of this precise? I mean, I think Jacob, microphone.
4: I think what uh, what Howard's talking about is very interesting, but I, I you know one of the things that occurs to me is is is, is when you have you, when you have several authors breaking give, putting their stuff out for free and gaining an audience. Uh, I think that's it, it's a really terrific thing and it's a really groundbreaking thing. But what happens whenever when all the other writers emulate that mm-hmm. and suddenly there are two hundred thousand books available for free on, on, on the web and you know a, and it keeps going up and up and up you know then mm. you know it, be, it becomes this huge sea of, of audience books. selection well but also the books that have not been vetted how do you, you know how do you know which the good ones are it 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 brings a whole different uh... climate to uh... it's
3: a quantum it's a phase change it's a total phase change in the industry we're, we would be going from an area where a company like yours, and you'll still be able to do this, because this is an important book. I like this. We want to put this out. We want to give this a marketing push because people need to know who this author is because what he or she has to say is very, very important. And then you also have the audience going, this shit rocks. I mean, that's the reaction you're going to get. You're going to get people out there like, you know, the, the, uh, pardon my language, but the phrase I've been thinking of lately is when somebody gets done reading a book goes, fuck yes, that was awesome. You know that guttural response to the fiction, where you get an emotional tangent like that—that that was important to me. You get both. I don't sure. see where you don't get both things. Well, I also
4: th- I also think there's a difference between
3: podcasting,
4: and say distributing you know copies of things in like PDF or uh, full text or, or, free or, online or, or, or word documents, right? Where where, where you where you're actually downloading the text. I mean, uh, a podcast is essentially a Radio Mm -hmm. uh, piece, and it's usually if you're if you're podcasting a novel, you don't usually. I'm I'm probably a little ignorant about this, but in my experience, we did one of these uh, uh, for a book called Burn that won the uh, Nebula Award uh, last year for James Patrick Kelly. But he he podcasted the book, but it was podcasted in sixteen chapters, one chapter every week. Mm -hmm. You would download, you 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 would go, and you listen to the new chapter. It wasn't like you had the book and then you had, you know, if you, you just print it all out at once. Print it out and you could, you, you could read it and you could read it next month. You could come back to it. You could give it to a friend. You know, it, it's not, a
3: podcast isn't a tangible book. And that's but, important because the, the, the tangible book, I, I all this talk about e-paper, PDFs, printing out your own book, the book as a portable object is never, ever, ever going to go away. I mean, it's zero power. It's low cost. It can't be destroyed except for fire or by water. And it I have when I put out the PDF for Ancestor, which came out and did real well on Amazon.com, we were all surprised at how well it did. We made a PDF. We gave that PDF away. It was downloaded forty two thousand times the week before the book came out. And and on every page we tried to explain to people like it costs more to print this than it does to just go buy it. You know, and the the cost of printing it may come down, but there's still, you're you're paying for convenience with, with a book. I mean, if you print it, you have to bind it, you have to carry it around. It's a giant mess. Dude, for 15 bucks, you can actually have the book and it goes on your shelf. I don't think the print book is going to go away anywhere.
1: Well, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it, if it wasn't the fact that your books sell because you give them away first. That's what Correct. Corey says. That's mm-hmm. what Strauss says. And it does work because people do, if they like it, yep. they'll think, oh, shit, this is neat. I'm going to get the book. Or I'll get the book and give it to Elizabeth or Jim. You know, mm-hmm. So people do still want the book. It's true.
3: And I think when you're giving it away, even if you have the 200,000 books out there, you're still going to get those cultural phenomenons and the cream's going to rise to the top. And something that makes you read it where it resonates with you and you want to go out and tell your friends, like, you guys mm-hmm. got to read this book. This book is fantastic. It's just more books in the playing field. And the other area that we haven't really discussed yet is that, Books in a bookstore are one thing. People who go to bookstores, people who go to libraries, people who stop their day and walk into a place of business and get a book and peruse it and check it out, that's one thing. You're hearing about it from somebody else, that's another thing. It's a different ballgame when a digital copy of that book is for free and you're at work and I get an instant message from a friend, click this link, check out this free PDF. I do it, I'm instantly consuming the work that has been spread to me. It's zero time, I don't have to leave where I'm at, I have it instantly and I'm already reading it with the endorsement of a friend. Those are things that are not, were not available 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. That is a way for your product name, your brand name, your, your philosophical bent, all of that to spread at the speed of light carried from one person to another in this giant expanding viral meme that we just didn't have before. I can pass one copy of a book on three months later they can pass that copy of a book on. In that same six month period, my PDF's been downloaded a hundred thousand times.
4: Sure, I, I don't I don't as a publisher, I actually have no problem with this at all because I think if one of our authors gives their book gives their book away for free and people can download it and they can read the first chapter and see if they like the book before before they really make a commitment to reading the book, you know, we will sell copies of the book. It'll be in people's interest. They can go and get the book with a really nice cover and put that on their shelves and, you know, when they're done and, you know, and give it to someone else. And, I, you know, I, you know as, as a reader, it bothers me in, in that, you know, what this process is circumventing is the old process <coughs> of of, of having to break in through this established. Of you deciding. Well, not not <laughs> me deciding, but but, but but you know, th- but that you have to, as a writer, you, you have to you know, you have to pay some dues. You you write a few books and you sell the third or the fourth, and you you know, th- and and you're competing with all these, you know, hundreds of thousands <coughs> of other books, and I think what's what's happening now is that there's a real novelty in that there's a few people who are doing what you're doing. And so it's, it, it's been very easy to get your work in front of a large audience because there's a large audience there without much competition. That's going to end. And that's going to end. And that, uh, as a reader, that's Howard
3: f- Hendricks' podcasting, for example, if <laughs> nobody it's knows all, who I am. It's, it's, all, it's all over. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you go to PodioBooks.com, you've never heard of Scott Sigler. Ooh, there's Howard Hendricks. I've heard of him. Where are you going to spend your time? So right. I think you're you're right. It's going to end. Well, so well free ride that, is over. That, but it's that leaves
4: two sort of well, levels. You've got the you've, you've got people giving their giving stuff away for free that you have to sort of, you know, and and then you ha- you know, and, and that gets you to the next level of of, of competing with the other hundred thousand people who actually have books in stores, and so you're you're you're, you're eventually what you have is a, is a glut of. Uh, of product.
2: Well, we, there's always been a glut of product. There's 180,000 books published every <laughs> year something like that. But a huge but glut. but the, the I think something that Terry mentioned is very interesting. The idea that you have to come with as it were a pre-created audience. And I think that that's problematic because what it, 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 it follows a trend that I think has already been going on in publishing for years. Uh, this idea that you need to score big on your first book the Stephen King, Amy Tan situation. You need to score big. Uh, I remember uh, Larry McMurtry, who wrote Lonesome Dove, uh, Last Picture Show, a number of other things, speaking at a uh, Writers Week event in Southern California. And he said that this was in the 80s. And he said, you know, when I began in the 50s, he said, "I I couldn't survive in today's market. Because when I began in the 50s, he said, publishers, would develop a writer's career. They say, yeah, I'll give him a, a grand or two and keep him going. There's, got, there's potential here. Now there's this sort of one-hit wonder phenomenon that you have to score big first time. And you can see a parallel to that in the recording industry. Uh, before the advent of the sort of album-oriented and career-oriented uh, uh, rock and roll, if you look at the 50s, it was there was little 45s, one hit, you know, some, sometimes the medium does dictate the message. Uh, then, starting in the 60s, you had this more this emphasis of building a career, larger format. Now, with MP3s, with file file sharing, you're seeing a return to that more sort of 45 one hit wonder approach to the world. My fear is that we're gonna see some of the same things, exacerbating things that are already happening in publishing. That's my concern with it. Uh, for those who are benefiting from it, fantastic. You caught that wave early, harness the inevitable, ride that sucker, okay? But my fear is the long term, you know, what's gonna be left when the wave goes out?
4: Well, in, in, some, in some respects, um, you know, this isn't true for what Tachyon does, but for other, for other publishers, uh, in some ways, I'm better off publishing Scott Siegler before he's found a publisher than I am publishing Howard Hendricks because Howard Hendricks has a track record. As a publisher, I can go, I can go into this thing called BookScan, which tells me every point of purchase sale that, that Howard has made. Uh, these are sales to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, and many of the bigger independent stores. And so, you know, it doesn't give me library sales. It doesn't give me some other stuff. But I can say ballpark, you know, a Howard Hendricks book will sell this much. But also the buyer at Barnes & Noble will, will look at that <coughs> when he's making his purchase. And he'll say, well, we sold this much of the last Howard Hendricks book, but we had 25% returns. Let's order 25% Less. Which means, of course, you're still going to get the 25 percent return, but you'll sell 25 percent less books. And wi- wi- with an unproven person, there's no there's no detriment. If you put the right marketing campaign behind it, you know, you, we've seen all these books recently by first time authors, just go through the roof. Uh, I forget the I forget the author wrote the historian, which is a historic vampire uh, yeah. novel and we had. Elizabeth uh, Kostova. Right. Thank you. And we had um, <coughs> Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, oh, yes. Susanna Clarke's uh, epic uh, historical British fantasy. But th- you know, those books, you know, didn't have anything holding them back. Mm-hmm. You, right. know, th- you know, when, 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 when their publishers said, you know, we're putting this kind of money behind it, and we expect this kind of sell, this kind of return. Uh, the publishers, you know, the, uh, the 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 gatekeepers in this case, which are Barnes and Noble and Borders and all the people in the bookstore, said, "Great, we'll take you know, we'll we'll take them." Um,
2: are you all familiar with the Robin Ho- Robin Hobb, Megan Lindholm situation? Mm, sure. Uh, where yeah. basically the book chains. The, believe me, I have no particular love of huge brick and mortar bookstores. I, they're something I've had to deal with, but one of the things that I found very discouraging is that an author had to change her name and publish under a different name because the chains had dictated that the books published earlier under her own name were not selling well enough. She changed her name and then she had best sellers. Now was there a magic sea change that happened there? I don't know, but this is where the the, the marketing emphasis, the bean counting gets in the way of art and craft. Yes, I will say the evil word, art, okay? Not just commerce. If, you know, if, if you live in a world where everything, all that matters is profit, then there's nothing else of value. If it's completely market-driven, there's nothing else of value. The ultimate ideology is profit. I think that's a failure to see human beings as only profit-driven or only technological. One of the problems with science fiction is we have had a tendency to think there's a technological solution to every human problem. That's just plain wrong. Human beings are not just technological creatures. They're more than technological creatures. To say that there's a technological solution to every human problem is just plain naive. It is spanking the space monkey, choking the cyber chicken, knuckling the nano knob. And if you want to throw God in there, it's pulling the God-pud too, right. there but, you but, go. but to say
3: that the profit-driven perspective Conveys that there's no end value is to completely devalue the people who bought the book. Nope. The people who buy the book, who make Stephen King's book a bestseller, yes. they have value. Their opinion has value. And I think that uh, 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 most of the points you're making are very interesting, but we have to look at the whole picture of the sales cycle. It's the author, it's the publisher, the publisher valuing the author, developing the author, but at the end of the day, it's people out there who go to work. For ten bucks an hour, twenty bucks an hour, whatever they're making, and then decide to to drop that money down to go buy a book. That is the end value of this whole chain. Otherwise, you're an artist creating art for your own sake, Mm -hmm. for the sake of the art because it's important. It needs to be said. Or are you an entertainer who's out to entertain people and sell product? There's, I think, there's a very definitive difference between those two things. I I think think that's both. I don't
1: know. I think that's a false dichotomy because. on Both of your parts, and I think we're kind of bark- barking up the wrong tree It seems to me like the problem with publishing which is kind of what we're talking about is <coughs> not people giving away books It's not all that kind of stuff. It's exactly what Jacob said Publishing I used to work in publishing. It is the most old-fashioned industry in the <laughs> US and they just now started computerizing their sales and it killed the midlist and because and and so now they no longer have to, uh, you know, uh, Tom Doherty no longer has to publish me, you know, because <laughs>
3: he knows,
1: okay, and and uh, that's the way it works. And so it's it's just the fact that they caught up with the rest of the world with uh, and track their inventory uh, instead of eight months in the future, they track it like a week in the future. You know, the, and the that's the problem
4: really is what is was. that as readers, it 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 ruins the the kind of careers that writers have in that if, if a writer changes their name four times before they're successful, well, maybe the writer is still successful, but it's very hard for us to figure out what their career path is. But
3: that was her choice. Well, no, no. Like what take, Th- that, well, but that, take The person like, who changed her name, that was her well, choice. Sure.
4: But but take someone like Ross McDonald, who was one of the most popular writers ever. Ross McDonald's first critical success, or not critical success, his first commercial success was with his twelfth book. But his publisher Knopf <coughs> kept all of his books in in print so that when the twelfth book hit big, you know, the other eleven books were still available and all of those sold and he eventually wrote like you know, forty Lou Archer books and every one of them was a tremendous success and all of them were always in print. And, but don't and, and, they and you know he but but he there was a point where he was not successful. And for him to you know, if if he had written you know, un- under several different names, there, are, there would be eight or nine books now that most of us would not be familiar with. And I, I, I think th- these are sort of... Mm. The like the Richard Bachman books, By like Stephen which get King. republished? Well, that's, mm. a li- that's, uh, that's a little different. That's, it, it's sort of like the books that Doris Lessing wrote under another, uh, under another name, just, just to see if someone actually would buy the books. Uh, Maybe we should throw this open. Does anybody have a yeah, question? Anybody with you. It is a false document.
2: <laughs> By the way, you're right. Art and commerce. God, Terry, p- you pulse. alluded to something
4: that I think uh, could be expanded on here. I am re- old enough to remember when a science fiction paperback cost 25 cents, a trade paperback cost 450, a hardcover cost $7. Now a hardcover is $27, trade paperbacks $15, a paperback is $7.99. No. Yeah. And I, I'm going to admit it, I own several books by Howard Hendricks and Howard Hendricks has never seen a penny of the money I spent on him because I will never pay list for any book. (laughs) They're way online.
2: And the authors are
4: getting paid not a whole lot more than they got in the
2: 50s. That's true. The Mm -hmm. rest of it goes to the
4: corporations. Mm -hmm. This bites. Oh, it does. And I don't know what the answer to this is.
2: There's a little history you might want to look at. The fact that the, if you look at book publishing, say, prior 1980. Uh, there were a lot more independent book pu- publishers who were not part of major media conglomerates. Yeah, a, five per- no. yeah, a, 5%, <laughs> a 5% return was pretty good. You know, if you had 5% growth, you're doing well. But the cor- big corporations bought them out and said, no, 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 we need a 15 to 20% growth rate. That tended to drive things toward huge, very large, big splash, big hit, approaches where, and another thing that contributed to the proverbial death of the mid-list. Okay, look at the history. Look at media consolidation over the last Mm. 30 years, and I think that also contributed to it.
3: You know, and one of the aspects that we haven't talked about at all tonight is advertising. There's two forms of entertainment called TV and radio, which have done pretty well for themselves by giving away product, and selling advertising against the downloads or the consumption of that product. So getting back to, I mean, the, the mid-list is going to be people who are, and, and the environment has changed. This is evolution. Things aren't the same. The atmosphere has changed. The oxygen content is not what it was two billion years ago. And now it's time for a different creature to step up that can succeed in that environment and take advantage of it. Like and that a knew mammal. it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that new environment is is self-promotion, engaging with your listeners, and interacting with your listeners. Now, if you're a mid-list author, let's say my book comes out April 1st, it's a flop. I sell 5,000 copies. That's great. But I'm able to capture information on, say, half of those people, 75% of those people. I'm now able to start building my own database as a, my own company. I'm a mid-list author unto myself. POD, podcast, PDFs with ads in it online uh, books like Band puts up with ads in it. There's a whole different revenue stream available to the author via ads and via donations. What Patio Books is finding, what some people have put out small press books with Patio Books is they have made more via just donations from people going, if this is free, if you enjoy it, throw some money to the author's way. If you don't, that's fine. They're, they're making more off of donations than they ever made off of the actual sale of the book. Now that's not the same as Midlist because Midlist authors can make a living just doing that. Donations can't do that right now. But as we expand the numbers, we're finding additional revenue streams for an author that they can bring in money that goes directly to them, not if you buy it in a used store or you buy it at discount or Howard gets his you know, 10% off of something he spends two years on and the, the, the corporation pockets a profit margin of 20 or 30, which isn't right at all. So there's the technology taketh and it giveth. As well, there's certain areas that you can, as an author, you can use to bring money in directly to yourself without somebody else dipping it in the pie.
2: And which does have a, an appeal to me, as long as it doesn't screw other authors. That's my only concern. I think it's it's faulty though to say that, to make the analogy of evolution, that presumes that evolution is itself is progressive, is teleological, has some goal, gets better and better. Evolution, according to Darwin, doesn't guarantee that things get better. They just get different. That's no, all I'm saying, is, I'm
3: saying. I'm oh, saying yeah. things are things are different. Yeah, I'm not right. saying things are better at all. Okay. In, in yeah. a in a perfect world, the corporations take a young author under their wing, give them four or five books, support them just like the old days of the band. Like you right. say, in the '70s, it was a whole different ballgame. Now, if you're going to make it music, your ass has to be out there in a van on tour, developing your own audience. Being Dave Matthews, being able to go to RCA and say, "Hey, we sold thirty thousand copies of our CD. Pay us." It's just, you know, it's not better. It's the way it is.
1: All right. Well, anybody, uh, what? <laughs> anybody, <laughs> what? I feel like it's well. the most inviting.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I probably have had to ask a question. yet. Yeah. <laughs> it, there's been a lot I've of things about. touched on here, and, and I think great conversation on on, on either side of the argument. And, um, it's so pretty obvious. A
1: argument, it's sort of a
0: circle. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would, I, I would definitely agree with that. But um, I think Howard brought something up, and, and, I, and I want to discuss it for just a minute and, and get the opinion of, of both panelists here, and Terry, you're welcome to chime in as well. And it has to do with the blockbuster mentality. right? The blockbuster mentality, if you don't understand what I'm talking about here, is that is that a small percentage of authors... Movie producers, record producers, whoever it is, they make the big bucks. And the rest of the folks live in that mid list or even lower list um, attitude. And that's been the way that it is for, for a variety of reasons. And my, my question is you know, I got to make a statement first. You know, when, when I started patiobooks.com, unlike Scott, who had a very definite uh, a plan of action about making true money with his. We just did it for fun. Everybody involved with it already had day jobs, and we just thought this is an interesting idea to help facilitate this. We're now looking at it as possible a <laughs> way we can actually make some money. But it wasn't the is- initial idea. But back to that idea, if, if there is, as Howard has mentioned here, this, this, I'll use your word, this harm to the rest of the authors out there, um, to where it's, it's not, they, they have to work harder, they have to do things differently, or whatever the case it is, to, to be as good as, let's say, a Scott Sigler, who is the current rock star in, in giving his podcast away for free. He is the current blockbuster. I think sometime in the next unit of time, whether that's one month, one year, one decade from now, blockbusters go away. What happens in that world, and is that a world either of you guys want to live
3: in. I'll, I'll just jump on this first. I think it's a sliding scale based on the numbers of the audience that's available. If there's anywhere from a half a million to 750 million people online right now, that number is going to expand exponentially till we probably get to the 2 billion mark in the next 10 years or so. So what a blockbuster is to me now, having 30,000 people listen to my novel, may be average in three to five years. A blockbuster in three to five years maybe if you don't have a million people listening to your book or downloading your PDF. You're not, quote, unquote, a blockbuster. So as to what's going to happen, 10 years from now, if you have 30,000 people listening to your book and you're able to sell ads against that audience, you're still going to be doing just fine. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I I agree. The whole concept of a blockbuster is going to go away because there's so many smaller blockbusters because with that many people, if you're able to put your work out and it's good quality work, the audience is going to find you if you help them figure out where you're at.
2: So a shift from, you're speaking of a shift from mass marketing to niche marketing, right. in essence. Yeah, uh, well, it, there's a du- this is a double-edged sword. To some degree, the uh, blockbuster has helped to float, make uh, corporations that are s- successful enough doing it to support other writers who are not blockbusters. So there's been that small uh, appropriate thing. My objection is that people are not looking long-term at it, that it's, uh, we're just going to make the money now, want it now, want it now, want it now. That's that's my real difficulty. Will there be a shift? Yeah, I think the shift is already underway, and to me, there's something wonderful about that, and something disheartening, because the signal to noise ratio is going to change. It's going to be harder, I think, to speak to a larger part of the culture if everything's just divided up this way. And I don't know whether the mass marketing, the niche marketing thing, is actually going to happen. There have been so many things that that have been proffered to us. The idea of the paperless office. (laughs) The idea of dematerialization of production, the weightless information society. I haven't seen any of that stuff happen. And I really do think that the idea that we're going to shift from mass marketing to niche marketing is probably still fallacious, especially if it's still largely based on popularity, word of mouth. What you're going to see is big hits that last a shorter amount of time. Big hit, shorter amount of time. That not careers, but big hit, make your money, get out now. Uh, you know, who will remember Britney Spears in five years? Some will, but not that many. That's that's what I'm looking at, the the one-hit-wonder phenomenon. Not that, that, that blockbusters are going to disappear, but they're going to be more ephemeral, more evanescent, is basically well, my point on it. Yeah.
1: Well, I would just say, the the thing I think about. that, I, I sort of, you know, I don't I disagree with much that Scott is saying. And I think, uh, uh, I do think it's, I don't think commerce has been, it,
2: you have to live with it.
1: Yeah. I think. You have to what, live with it. But I do disagree. It, it's like the, there's this idea that you have, if you get rid of the gatekeepers and people appeal directly to the <laughs> mass audience and then you're going to have authors that are going to come with it, they're going to bring their own audience and this is going to open up to, to where enormous kinds of creativity that, that gatekeepers and stuff didn't recognize. So anything that people come up with will, you know, you'll, you'll get an, an enormous burst of, of diversity and creativity. I think it's very possible it's going to be the opposite. If you really want to do a block, what people really want is the same old thing. <laughs> and so, if you really want the block, the ones that are really going to go, it's going to be the Harry Potters. You know, you got your wizards, you got your broomsticks. You know, and mm-hmm. so it's going to be kind of the same. I, there's a I can see where really unique stuff could flourish in that atmosphere, but I could also see where. Uh, the uh, the main thing would, be, would flourish would be the Britney Spears would be the 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 you know like you say the Flash in the pan hugely popular for a little while and we we'll get you in there and you know uh,
3: uh, but who knows think the, the at the end of the day thank goodness that we are in a country and a culture where if you don't like the way the publishing industry works there's nothing to stop you from going and starting your own imprint and being able to do exactly what you want to do and then if you're able to go out and either a make a profit off that, or use your own resources to fund turning other people into long-term support mid-list to move them up to the to the bestseller list. That's great. That's all wide open. You know, I mean, so I mean, if, if people, it's like when I have political arguments, nine times out of ten, my argument is, if you don't like it, why aren't you running for office? Why aren't you trying to do something? You, there's a lot of That's things you right. can do. You can go start your own firm and do your own thing. All right. well, here I we think we've succeeded. Right here. He's one decided one to
1: speak. Um,
5: Britney Spears is actually the wrong comparison to make. You know, it's her appeal was to a teenage audience, and then so it's it's a very much a flash in the pan type of yeah. you know, mm-hmm. nature. That's true. In books, the real blockbusters tend to last for a very long time, and they sell. The blockbuster tends to sell maybe ten times as much as the next person down. Stephen King in horror, you know, J.K. Rowling in young adult. Um, Tom Clancy in military fiction. For for science fiction, I would say actually the the big blockbuster is Michael Crichton. You know how many books did Jurassic? How many yeah. books did Jurassic Park sell compared to any other science fiction? Author?
3: More than all of them. Right. <laughs>
5: isn't it? Isn't it? That, did that count as a genuine science fiction book?
1: Yeah, but uh, it's not marketed that way. No. But. Yeah.
5: but um, uh,
3: that's what I'm looking at right now with Crown. They don't want to market me as horror or science fiction. They're like, we're gonna we're gonna up level that. I'm like, dude, it's a freaking horror novel. What do you want? So Yeah.
4: yeah.
5: Well, so if you're looking so for <laughs> <laughs> if you're trying to develop a, a market for <coughs> a good, promising young author to be the next blockbuster, you know, there's so many market forages involved. How do you know who's gonna be the next Tom um, County?
3: you don't or, know
1: or cold mountain or amy tan so they've yeah. you know so i have a a relative actually a, a young woman who's like 21 years old it's not a relative but a friend of a relative and she's she's got a hundred thousand dollar advance on her second novel but if, and if but if it doesn't sell she's, she's finished done. yeah she's, she's done. done you know so and but i'm with scott that's show business you know <laughs> I, I don't feel sorry for uh anybody that, except myself.
3: It's never <laughs> been a nice, in- <laughs> I mean, th- this has never been a nice industry. No. <laughs> there, there, There's a lot, you know, uh, I mean, people can tell, uh, there's a general attitude that big business is, is kind of evil going for the profit margin, but somebody has to pay the people to lay out that book, edit that book, print that book, somebody has to get paid to distribute that book, that book is in stores, the people in the stores have to make a wage, the people have to make a profit, the investors have to make a profit. There is money dipping into the till at every phase of the process and if the product doesn't return a profit to the investors then they, it is their obligation to go out and find something that does return or they go out of business that's just flat darwin darwinism down the line you know what i mean it it's it is what it is and and i think that the the odd part about all this is now thanks to the internet and podcasts and pdfs if you just want to create what you want to create you can do that if it resonates and you make a profit off that great if it doesn't resonate you still keep putting that out there and now the difference is, 50 years ago, if you wanted to put something out that only appealed to 500 or 1,000 people, you're, out of, you're gone. No one's going to publish your book. No one gets to hear your voice. <coughs> now, it's completely different. If you've got 1,000 people reading your blog because you've got a great voice, that can go on for as long as you live. Because there's, <coughs> you know, is enabling people at all different levels throughout this process.
5: Um, one other thing I'd like to point out is, I don't know if you've read Corey Doctorow's
1: Okay. And we don't read his shit
5: <laughs> <laughs> he gives his
3: crap away I don't like him
5: well he, one of the things he mentioned was that um, there was a study of, made a few years ago about the effects of online distribution to uh, music <coughs> sales. yeah and the, basically the, the what it was was the bottom 25% actually increased physical sales of CDs And then from twenty five to ninety eight percent, it basically had no effect, and the top two percent was where it went down. And um, yeah, I remember that. In terms of of books, I think if you are a novelist, you're probably better off. If you are a short story author, like Harlan Ellison, for instance, you're probably on the downside, because a short story it's easy to consume, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what he specializes in. Yeah. But if you're in a novelist, then at a certain point, you know, it just gets easier to read if you actually have a physical book than if you're trying to you know, read it off of the screen Absolutely. or listen to a weekly podcast. And then so in there, you're actually, the, the numbers are probably more in your favor.
2: Yeah. I, I, I would not, I don't have the same sort of technological optimism that some folks do. Technologies always have unintended consequences as well. And I think it is important and incumbent upon us to consider those possibilities. And that's why I, I I don't see this as a sort of panacea. I don't see it as incredibly evil either. But I think that it's something that should be looked at carefully as we look at all technologies carefully, instead of just being cheerleaders for what appears on the internet, that we think critically about it. And that's all I'm trying to do.
1: Well, at that, let's uh Let's say good night. Um,
2: all right. Good night. Both. Good and night. I, We
1: all agree we should look at technology, but I agree
2: with Scott. We can't do a goddamn thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I disagree. Technology is neither autonomous nor totalizing. Neither of those. <laughs> <laughs> you can do something about it. Hey, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you guys.